0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Weisper Chen.
0: And this was a damn interesting week) So let's get started with our first link. First,
1: first link. link
2: from JSTOR Daily, we've got a quick little ditty about algae, the food of the future of the past.
0: Oh, are we gonna mm. be eating algae? Is that <laughs> like is that what's coming?
2: <laughs> well, some people are already eating algae, right? Like chlorophyll mm. pills and in pill form, but In the years following World War II in particular, American and European food scientists were hoping to feed the world with common pond scum supplemented (laughs) with plastics.
0: Mm -mm -mm. What? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, I guess at the time they were like, plastics will save
2: us. Oh, that was totally the thing. But regardless, we do think about these foods today as very natural, if not naturally appealing. Mm -hmm. But American studies scholar Warren Belasco writes, When algae as food first became a widespread dream in the years after World War II, it was viewed as a marvel, not of nature, but of technology. Hmm. So by the 1940s, the world's population had doubled in just four decades, and there were no signs of slowing down, and a lot of people started fearing that agriculture couldn't produce enough food to feed everyone. Some people were hoping to synthesize carbs, fats, and protein from coal, petroleum, or even air. (laughs) So it was this context that Carnegie Institution-sponsored researchers with the Stanford Research Institute and Arthur D. Little Incorporated embarked on pilot projects growing chlorella pyrenoidosa. The freshwater algae could convert 25% of solar energy into food, brimming with protein, calories, and vitamins. And they hmm. claimed they could produce 17 to 40,000 pounds of protein per acre compared with a paltry 500-ish pounds for soybeans. Hmm. And the media was all about this. We had the New York Times, Fortune, and Newsweek jumping on the idea, running stories that marveled at the idea of turning pond scum into dinner. But one significant problem acknowledged by even its advocates was that algae is super rank. It's gross. It's disgusting. <laughs> but many anticipated, hey, we got food chemists and psychologists. Maybe we could get them to work together to develop a satisfactory algae-based food, such as this proposal by Caltech biologist James Bonner, steaks made chewy by addition of a suitable plastic matrix. <sighs> You know, and this was coming from a mindset where he suggested in the future, quote, human beings will place less emotional importance on the gourmet aspects of food and will eat more to support their body chemistry. Oh, you sweet summer child. Yeah, dream on, man. (laughs) (laughs) A flavor panel at Arthur D. Little's laboratory in Cambridge found that when chlorella was mixed into chicken soup, the stronger, less pleasant notes were much reduced and the gag factor was not noticeable. <laughs> Talk about damning with faint praise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it wasn't just the super gross flavor that killed the algae craze. Growing it turned out to be a lot harder than expected. Applying tech to supply the world with soybeans and corn Turned out to be easier, which is why- (laughs) It's in everything. That's in everything. But over the decades, world hunger did drop dramatically and we didn't
0: need algae dinners to do it. Well, that's a relief.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm happy for that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I will say, I like seaweed. Yeah. you know, Put it in like a Japanese food context, I'll eat it. I don't know if I want it to be the only thing I eat. But
2: even with seaweed, it has a substance. It stays intact, whereas algae is so microscopic, Mm. That they had to look at plastics, the right. miracle <laughs> substance of the uh, mid-20th century.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I sit there and balk at like, they want to make things out of petroleum. But it's like, actually, quite a lot of our food is made out of petroleum. The dyes, mm-hmm. they're all. Oh, yeah. So I don't really have a leg to stand on. <laughs> yeah, And if you use cosmetics, a great deal
2: of those are mm. distilled from petroleum. So can't be too picky. But algae, not in the menu for now. For now. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. link.
1: This article comes to us from ArsTechnica.com, and it's titled Highway Warnings About Traffic Deaths May Increase Crashes Study Finds.
0: Oh, boy.
1: Yeah. So Jonathan Hall and Joshua Madsen used Texas to study the impact of safety messages on highway safety thanks to a unique feature of the state. It only displays the statewide road death count on electronic highway signs in the week leading up to each month's Department of Transportation meeting. That allowed the researchers to compare crashes downstream of an electronic sign during those weeks and to look back to crashes on the same stretch of road during the years before the safety campaign started in 2012. The results are not encouraging, and like chained-together combos in a macabre video game, the increased rate (laughs) of crashes per hour remained elevated along stretches that had multiple electronic signs. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. the effect diminished four to six miles downstream of an electronic sign. Mm. Looking at historical data for the years before TextDot started displaying the death toll one week a month, showed that the effect wasn't present before 2012, and the effect was persistent across the five years analyzed. So, pretty clear-cut there.
0: Yeah, and grim. Yeah. I mean, it's not just a like, hey, we've noticed when these signs are up, there's more crashes. It's like, immediately after this sign you are likely to get into yeah. a wreck I mean, and die. And, it spikes yeah. my
2: anxiety every single time. It basically puts you into alert flare. Yeah, yeah, well,
0: and if you're paying attention to them, I don't know about you guys, every time I see one of those signs, I'm like, well, what was it last month? Was it like seventeen hundred, and now it's eighteen hundred, or did we have a big <laughs> spike? Like it, it engages your brain in something that isn't driving, which is always going to be bad. Yeah,
1: yeah. The researchers note that this effect increases or decreases in pace with the increase or decrease in road deaths, and in effect, resets each year when the total is reset by TechStot between January and February. Bigger numbers weigh heavier on drivers' minds. So literally, the the more deaths there are, (laughs) you show that to people, and then the more deaths there are, which is, yeah. It's like the dark side of manifestation.
0: Yeah, it's just a terrible idea in every way.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) In total, Hall and Madsen estimate that displaying road death information increases crashes by 4.5% over the following six miles of road. And this has caused an extra 2,600 crashes a year in Texas since the practice began in 2012 at the cost of 16 deaths and perhaps $380 million to society. The effects may not be entirely consistent across all U.S. states that display cumulative road death statistics on highway signs, however. Uh. The authors note that how often the death toll gets displayed may have an effect, diminishing an impact with increased frequency, so drivers get desensitized in states like Illinois that display these numbers a lot. And they also note that the effect is magnified with a larger death toll, and so maybe more pronounced in Texas, a large state with a high annual death toll.
0: I mean, maybe, but... At the end of the day, this clearly seems like a human thing, not a Texan thing. I I mean, that just feels like an absolute cop out to be like, oh, it's only Texas. Like, well, we probably have the most data given our size.
2: So that may have been a factor.
1: Well, the where it says that the death toll getting displayed has a diminishing impact with increased frequency. Maybe they just go the opposite direction and they put like 10 of them in a row all within like six (laughs) feet, you know, and then you're like, I get it. I get it. Like 10,000 people have died this year. Thank you. Yeah, I don't care anymore. Yeah.
0: You know what it makes me think of is that classic gag in cartoons where there's like a population sign and like you hear a gunshot and then the number rolls down. Yeah, (laughs) it's updating constantly maybe that's what we need is just a really constantly updating one and when it rolls up one everyone will be like oh god someone Uh, just died uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) and then when it goes down one they're like oh god somebody was just born Mm.
0: right 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 (laughs) a death
2: watch live stream I don't know how you're going to get that past the censors y'all
1: Yeah, (laughs) 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 I think I would crash a lot watching that Uh, (laughs) anyways next link Next Next link.
0: link. All right. Well, Zachary Crockett at The Hustle has a fascinating article on the surprising afterlife of used hotel soap. Mm. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a great example of how powerful a single word can be because he could (laughs) have just called it the afterlife of hotel soap and we all would (laughs) have understood. Mm -hmm. Right. But you put that little word used in there and all of a sudden the (laughs) gross factor just skyrockets. Mm -hmm. So what surprised me most about the afterlife of used hotel soap was the scale of the issue, which is affected by a number of factors. So first, a lot of people might take home a free bottle of shampoo or conditioner, but almost no one takes home the bar of soap if they've already opened it. Mm -hmm. And these little packages of soap definitely do get opened in the hotel. According to data collected by Boston University School of Hospitality Administration, packaged soap is used by 86% of travelers, which is more than any other hotel amenity. It includes Whoa. the TV at eighty-four percent and even the closet at just eighty-one percent. Which took me back. I was like, who are you nineteen percent not using the closet? That's so weird. But uh-huh.
2: <laughs> well, if it's a quick overnight, you just put the suitcase and just live out
0: of that for like twenty-four hours. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah. still, no. <laughs> you need to organize your thing. <laughs> But so if you start doing the math, there are about five million hotel rooms in the US and pre-pandemic the average occupancy rate was sixty-six percent. That translates into around 3.3 million tiny bars of soap going into hotel bathrooms every day and about 2.8 million of them getting opened and abandoned after just a couple of uses. And, you know, it gets a little fuzzy if you try to calculate, well, my trip was actually three days, so I only opened one bar of soap <laughs> instead of three. But regardless, we can all agree the number's really big. So a guy named Sean Sipler was thinking about all this back in 2008 At the time, he was a tech executive who spent about 150 nights a year in hotel rooms. The article mentions he's had a few cocktails, which is a strange detail. But (laughs) nevertheless, it made him bold enough, apparently, to just call the front desk and ask point blank, what are you going to do with my soap when I leave? (laughs) And, (laughs) And the guy at the desk, of course, said, well, it all goes straight in the landfill. So when Sippler got home from that trip, he walked into a Holiday Inn near his home and asked if he could have the leftover toiletries from that day's maid service. And they said, sure, I guess, and handed him a big bag. Then he went to six other hotels and did the same thing. He set up a workshop in a single car garage in downtown Orlando where he lives, and he and a few friends got to work recycling the soap. He says they sat on upside down pickle buckets and used (laughs) potato peelers to shred all the little bars of soap they got. Ah. Then they pulverized those pieces in a meat grinder and melted them down in a row of kitchen slow cookers. They poured the liquid into big trays, let it harden overnight, then cut them up into nice new bars of soap. With this process, they found they were able to churn out 500 bars of soap a day. What? Mm. Then, of course, came the question of what they were going to do with it. And one of the things Sippler was keenly aware of was that at the time, around 9,000 children a day were dying of hygiene-related diseases worldwide. And studies had shown that just handwashing would cut those numbers in half. So he launched a nonprofit called Clean the World and applied for a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He says, quote, I put together the grant, imagining that Bill would walk up our driveway and hand us a check for a million (laughs) dollars. But we got a rejection notice within (gasps) eight hours of submission with a note that said, please do not reapply for three years. What? (laughs) So instead, he flipped the whole thing around and came up with an annuity model. Basically, the hotels pay him to participate in his recycling program, (laughs) usually about a dollar per room per month. And in exchange, They get everything they need to streamline the process, including a Clean the World branded bin to toss the soap in, staff training sessions and free shipping labels for when the bin is full. And more importantly, they get regular impact reports that detail for them the exact social and environmental benefits of their donations, including the total pounds of waste they've personally diverted, their carbon footprint reduction. And that data can be used by the hotel to prove that they've met certain sustainability goals, whether those are set by the franchise or the local government where they are, or maybe it's just something they want to put on their website to attract customers. So today, Clean the World partners with more than 8,000 hotels worldwide, or about 1.4 million rooms. Their clients include not only major chains like Hyatt and Marriott, but also cruise ships, casinos, and airlines. And speaking of fun stats, since 2009 the company has collected 13 million pounds of discarded soap wow. and distributed 68 million new bars of soap to 127 countries. Wow. Like they scaled up fast. Oh it's my amazing. Gosh. One of their newest clients is Hilton Hotels who signed up all of their locations worldwide in 2019. And has already contributed 14.5 million bars of used soap in less than three years, which is great, but also insane when you think about how much of it was going just into the garbage. (sighs) Obviously, their process has had to become a lot better than a couple of guys with potato peelers. (laughs) They now run a major production facility in Orlando with satellite operations in Las Vegas, Hong Kong, the Dominican Republic, Montreal and Amsterdam. The soap is first dumped into a refining machine that filters out hair, dirt, and other debris. Hello, gross. And squeezes out soap noodles, which then go into a mixer and are sterilized with diluted bleach, which they did not do in the first round, but apparently at some
1: point. You know, it's soap. It cleans everything it touches, so. Right.
0: Then it moves into something called a duplex plotter, which pounds it into loose powder. Then it can be pressed into bars with the Clean the World logo on it and shipped to places in need. And because every hotel uses a slightly different kind of soap, they now also rely on more than 20,000 volunteers to help them figure out which ones don't mix well with each other. Like, I guess you can get on the beta test of their new bars of soap and find out if they're any good. (laughs) Sipler says, for example, that Holiday Inn Macau's Oatmeal Bars pair very well with Aloft Taipei's Bliss Bars. I don't know what a Bliss Bar is, but... I think
2: (laughs) Bliss is a spa, and they do have some tie-ins. Ooh, they're getting expensive soap. (laughs) Well, you know, if it's comparable to the good stuff, that's basically what they're trying to say, right?
0: Yeah, that's true. So for distribution, they partner with charities like UNICEF to stay up to date on where their product is most needed. Unfortunately, Clean the World took a huge hit when the pandemic hit, no one was staying in hotels, yet demand for soap was at an all-time high. And what's more, even when the hotels did start opening back up, a lot of them had pivoted to these large liquid soap dispensers mm-hmm. and sanitizer pumps that you didn't have to touch. There are also a few other charities that have gotten it on the game now, including EcoSoap and Diversy, But Clean the World is still by far the largest organization. And the good news is, overall, it's working. Since 1990, hygiene support programs have led to a more than 60% reduction in childhood death from relevant diseases worldwide. As for what we can do, short of volunteering for their program to test their soap, you know, I guess you should just make sure you always open that bar of soap in the hotel room so it gets passed along and doesn't just get handed to the next guest. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Messy Nessy Chic has
2: a really lovely article all about The Secret Code of Beauty Spots. Oh. Yeah. So in the 18th century, cosmetics were being explored with abandon, and beauty patches became an essential fashion accessory of the landed aristocracy and the politically powerful. And like most fashion trends throughout history, not everybody was a fan. (laughs) English and Puritan parliament went as far as to legislate against the use of beauty patches, which they condemned as an immoral vice. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> intense. But these beauty patches are also known as a mouche, which is the French word for fly, as in the insect, <laughs> which mm. is not the most flattering, but. The display of pale, marble-white, if not anemic, skin was essential for the 18th century upper classes in society to demonstrate they had never been exposed to a harsh environment, let alone engaged in manual labor. (laughs) Mm. Of course, the irony here is that such an obsession to convey a life of leisure was a near-suicidal endeavor because lead and arsenic was all in those whitening compounds, right? So, okay, why flies on the face? (laughs) The origins of moosh fashion are still a little mysterious. For the elite, they ultimately became a means of sending clandestine messages by means of a familiar design and placement code. Of course, you know, this was the era of Pride and Prejudice, where every detail in a person's appearance relayed information about their status mouche was created from satin, velvet, leather, even mouse fur, and applied yeah. with glue. <laughs> the shapes were fantastic and infinite. I mean, there were moons, stars, hearts, squares, dots, ships, even an elaborate horse-drawn carriage had been reported. <laughs> so, But the placement, rather than the shape... Was a lot more important, and they could be swapped and shuffled around the face as the occasion demanded. If you were engaged, you put a heart patch on the left cheek. Once you're married, you put that heart patch on the right cheek. (laughs) Hmm. Inevitably, the patches grew physically larger, which had another French anonymous writer saying all young ladies who find it difficult to wean themselves from patches all at once shall be allowed to wear them in whatever number, size, or figure they please, on such parts of the body as are or should be most covered from sight. Oh, tell us what to do, anonymous <laughs> Frenchman. The fashion- It sounds like he's
0: basically saying, you have to stop, but if you can't stop, just put it under your clothes where no one will see it. Like, it's an addiction. Like, you're like, no, this is so important to me. So whitening skin
2: kept being a thing until the 19th century, especially for women. The use of patches sort of started to fall away in the later 19th century. But it came back briefly with the 20s. It girl Clara Bow was photographed wearing a little star-shaped one. The 50s, when Marilyn Monroe and her natural beauty spot took Hollywood by storm. And Mm. 90s kids cannot forget Cindy Crawford and her beauty spot. But the 2020s, we've kind of come full circle because I don't know if you guys have seen these. There are these really cute emoji style pimple patches that you put on a zit. So it actually treats your pimple, but looks like a cute little sticker or a star or a flower. Yeah, so, you it's know. a
0: decorative band-aid. All right.
2: Or as we might call it, a moosh. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can come out with a horse-drawn carriage pimple patch. You know, There's 3D printing makes it all possible now, guys. <laughs>
0: That's horrifying. <laughs> I'm imagining some hip young kid going to high school, except she's got a horse-drawn carriage <laughs> on her face. Yeah, I'm just
2: attached. Listen, I just want to wear stickers on my face. You can't stop I'm me. Not,
0: I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying. I think you should follow your dream. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next,
2: Next link.
1: link. This article comes to us from theguardian.com. And we're all adults here, so I'll just read the title experience I opened the world's largest penis museum
0: oh this is my very solemn acknowledgement of that title I'm (laughs) not laughing at it I'm an adult yes we're all adults
1: (laughs) here and nobody (laughs) is laughing for sure (laughs) anyways uh so I'll read this in the first person because it is a autobiographical article by Sigur Hjartarsson which I do not know if I'm pronouncing that right so for most of my life I've been a teacher in Iceland where I was born one night in 1974 i was having a drink with my fellow teachers after school and playing bridge the conversation turned to farming in iceland we were discussing how the industry finds a use for every part of the animal take lamb for instance the meat is eaten, the skin is used for clothes, the intestines for sausage and the bones turned into toys for kids. What? I, I did not know personally. Uh, but
2: <laughs> just gloss right through that. <laughs>
1: yeah. Someone asked if there was a use for the penis, which made me recall how as a child I had been given a dried bull's penis as a whip to drive the animals out to pasture every day. I was telling my fellow teachers about this and said that I would be interested in finding a whip like that again. Well, said one of my friends, you might be lucky. He was returning to his family's farm that weekend and offered to find me some pizzles, a very oh. old word for penis. <laughs> I agreed, and the next week my friend came back with four bulls penises in a plastic bag. I took, them, I took them to a local tannery and had them preserved. I gave three away as Christmas presents and kept the fourth.
0: Wow. That was
1: the start of my collection.
2: That was the start. (laughs) What an auspicious beginning. Yeah.
1: So (laughs) at first, it was a bit of a joke. It was very common then for teachers to have other jobs in the farming and animal industries, such as whaling. So to tease me, other teachers began to bring me penises from their second jobs. (laughs) (laughs) I started learning how to preserve them then gradually the collection took on a life of its own i thought what if i collect the penises of all the species of iceland so that is what i tried to do okay i kept an eye on the news if an interesting whale was found beached on the coast i would try to get the penis as a specimen <laughs> or if an outlying island was be mature <laughs> was infested <laughs> with black we're rats. way beyond that man. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, sorry, just had to let it out. Okay, Uh, or if an outlying island was infested with black rats that had escaped from a ship, I'd ask the pest control technician to send me one. I've always had a rule that no animal would be killed for my collection, which is nice. Oh, sure, yeah. By 1997, i had amassed 63 specimens, and the story of my collection had become more well-known. I was invited to display it in a small space in the center of Reykjavik, and my penis museum, or the Phallological Museum, to give it its proper name, was born. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways to preserve a penis, and I have tried all of them. So the (laughs) collection varies between dried, stuffed, and mounted penises, and also those floating in (laughs) alcohol or formaldehyde.
0: Okay.
1: In 2011, my son took over, and the museum is now in a much larger building in the center of town. Alongside the collection is information on the cultural history of the penis, displays of memorabilia, it's a wonderful museum, and I'm proud of what my son has done with it. Tourists visit from all over the world, as well as doctors and biologists. Hmm. The collection is very large today, as people have sent in specimens. The largest from a sperm whale is about six feet long, while the smallest from a European mouse is less than a millimeter and must be looked at through a magnifying glass. Aww. We have one human penis on display from a 95-year-old man who left it to us in his will in 2011. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. A few well-endowed humans, one from America and one from Germany, have promised to donate theirs when they die. They are young, though, so we'll have to wait a while for those.
2: Oh, no. (laughs) Is there a gift shop for this museum?
1: I don't see anything about a gift shop, but uh, I... I hope so. I don't, I don't know. I... <laughs> surely,
0: surely there has to yeah. be. I mean, if they're making money with people buying tickets, they they have to have monetized the oh, gift yeah, aspect of it,
1: absolutely. And uh, as we close to the end, he says, "You might call me a bit eccentric. At first, people thought there was something wrong with me, but over time, <laughs> they saw I was a serious collector who was precise and accurate with the information I kept, and that there was nothing pornographic about the collection." I'm happy that people don't think I'm a pervert
0: anymore. (laughs) Uh, Anymore.
1: (laughs) 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 But I mean, he's got a great point, you know, like I personally believe that for every interest and thing in the world, there's somebody out there to have a great interest in it. Yeah.
0: And the more museums we have on like really niche topics, the better. I mean, that's my favorite thing to do when I travel is like, yeah, okay, you try the food, you visit the local town square or whatever. But the unique museums that you can't get anywhere else, those are the really cool things. Now i got to go to Iceland and check it out. (laughs)
1: Yeah, right. Next link. Next Next link.
0: link. All right, this next article is from The Atlantic, and it's called The Puzzle That Will Outlast the World. So the author is AJ Jacobs, and it's, again, a first-person account of his attempt to own literally the world's hardest puzzle. Hmm. Spoiler alert, he does now have it. But... (laughs) To understand what the puzzle is and how it works, we have to dive a little into the history of physical puzzles, starting with the Chinese ring puzzle, which dates back about 2,000 years. The point of a Chinese ring puzzle is to remove a set of rings from a bar to which they're attached. And it's not really difficult in a conceptual sense. Like there's a pattern of moves and you can learn the pattern and then you'll know how to solve it. But the way it's designed is recursive meaning that it takes exponentially more moves depending on how many rings are attached to it. Mm. So solving a three-ring puzzle only takes five moves, but a six-ring puzzle takes 42 moves, a nine-ring puzzle takes 341 moves, and so on. Wow. This is why it's also sometimes called a patience puzzle or a generation puzzle in Chinese because culturally... The idea was that if you had a puzzle with enough rings on it, you could spend your whole life making moves before you'd have to pass it on to your children. And down the line, someone might eventually finish a puzzle that their great-great-grandparent had started solving. So Jacobs really liked that idea for his family, but he wanted something harder that could really express the vastness of time and the insignificance of humanity, you know, the way you explain it to your kids. So <laughs> he reached out to a master puzzle maker in the Netherlands named Oscar Van Deventer, and he took on the challenge. Jacobs describes the new puzzle that Oscar created for him, which Oscar named a Jacobs Ladder, as a cross between a Jenga Tower, a giant corkscrew, and a girder from a skyscraper.
2: What?
0: They do have a picture of it, if that isn't evocative enough for you. (laughs) The puzzle's main wooden column is studded with 55 interlocking wooden pegs, which together trap a black corkscrew rod running up the middle. And you have to turn the pegs in the proper order to remove the rod. But of course, the catch is you have to turn the pegs many, many, many times. Mm. How many times, you ask? Well, the current record for the hardest puzzle is a 65-ring Chinese puzzle owned by collector Jerry Slocum which remains unsolved because it would take 18 quintillion moves, or a 1 followed by 19 zeros. What? Jacob's Ladder is significantly harder than that. It will take 1.2 decillion moves, or a 1 followed by 33 zeros. What? If you were to twist one peg per second forever, the puzzle would take about 40 septillion years to solve. By that time, the sun would have long ago destroyed the Earth, and in fact, all light in the universe would have been extinguished with only black holes remaining. And even if you make the moves much faster, there's a little friction involved in each twist, such that if only one atom were to rub off during each move, the whole puzzle would erode into nothing long before you could solve it. Wow. But it exists, and it lives in Jacob's house as a permanent existential reminder of infinity. (laughs) His kids don't seem that impressed by it. When he first unpacked it, his youngest son's comment was, it's about the journey, not the destination. To which <laughs> Jacobs replied exactly, except without the eye roll part. So as long as he's not forcing them to participate, I guess, but like they're going to inherit this thing. And I just...
1: <laughs> it's also the only object of its kind, so if you throw it out, you're a huge jerk. Exactly. I could see this being a cursed object. There you like go. hundred years into the future. <laughs> just multiple generations destroyed by this thing.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I mean, really, the only solution to get rid of the curse is to do the atom rubbing off thing, to, like, wear it down to nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so <if you> just
2: <laughs> This thing is going to sprout religions and cults in the future. I'm calling yeah. it now.
0: Get the whole village in. Someone's always on on guard (laughs) twisting the pegs (laughs) (laughs) next link next Next link link. the guardian is reporting that japan
2: has invented electric chopsticks that make food seem more salty Mm -mm 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 -mm. huh Mm -hmm. yeah the device uses a weak current to artificially amplify the taste of salt as part of efforts to reduce sodium levels in popular dishes There is a picture. It's a guy holding chopsticks. He's got like a little wristband that has what looks like a Mac charger and then a wire connecting. it. It is electrified. Make no mistake. But (laughs) here's how it works. The device transmits sodium ions from food through the chopsticks to the mouth where they create a sense of saltiness. This is from Homei Miyashita, a professor at Meiji University in Tokyo, whose laboratory collaborated with the food and drink manufacturer Kirin to develop the device. They're looking to refine the prototype and hope to make the chopsticks available to consumers next year. And especially in Japan, they're thinking this is a pretty receptive audience because the traditional diet tends to be pretty high in salt due to the use of ingredients like miso and soy sauce. The average mm. Japanese adult, in fact, consumes about 10 grams of salt a day, which is double the amount recommended by the World Health Organization. The Health Ministry of Japan has proposed reducing daily salt intake to a max of 7.5 grams for men. And 6.5 for women. And yes, even though the chopsticks use electricity, it's very weak, not enough to affect the human body, although I take umbrage with that because it's obviously working by affecting the human body. Right. They've done some clinical tests on people who follow a low sodium diet, and they did confirm the device enhances the salty taste of low sodium food by about 1.5 times. They gave huh. these participants some reduced salt miso and they said that it had improved richness, sweetness, and overall tastiness. So Japan's got it going on and I would probably be curious to try this if only to see like how it affects different types of non-salty foods already. Like if I just got like a bland vegetable, is it gonna mm, hey, veggies, okay.
0: Well, we'll swing by Iceland on the way. There we'll you see go. See the penis museum. We'll get the electrified chopsticks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We are so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to include Inside the Chaotic Collapse of CNN+, Time Might Not Actually Exist, Researchers Say, and Monkeys Love Their Alcohol. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, maybe buy us a cup of coffee to show your appreciation, you can do so at Patreon.com slash DamnInterestingWeek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Waysfer Chen.
0: And we hope you have a Damn Interesting Week. Bye-bye.